We'll hear argument now in number 01-1229, Pierce County uh, versus Ignacio Gein. Uh, Mr. Hamilton. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. From the enactment of the 1966 Highway Safety Act, Congressional reports, specifically number 17 to the 89th Congress, which is quoted on page 2 of the blue brief, uh, Congressional reports noted that, quote, no other part of the state program is as basic to ultimate success, nor is demanding of complete cooperation, end quote, a state collection of accident reports because they are the basis for hazard identification and correction. However, soon after the 1973 Highway Safety Act uh, made accident data collection a condition to federal hazard elimination funds, the Secretary of Transportation reported to Congress that states strongly objected because they feared that their collection of accident data would be used against them in damage actions. Because of this unintended liability exposure threatened the integrity and proper operation of a cooperative federal state program that has saved thousands of lives. Would you help us figure out how to interpret the statute. Um, It says data, highway safety data compiled or collected by a state. Now, I suppose that in a crossing like we have here, where there might have been accidents from time to time, that there would be police reports or highway officer reports of motor vehicle accidents at that site, right? Yes, Your Honor. And those presumably are not either compiled or collected for the purpose of getting highway funding from the federal government. They're compiled, I gather, to uh, serve the normal functions of um, law enforcement. Uh, Your Honor, no, that's not completely correct. No? Um, they are collected and compiled uh, for purposes of highway uh, uh, hazard identification, essentially from the very beginning. Um, because of Well, uh, don't you suppose that at least in some jurisdictions, maybe not Tacoma, but in some jurisdictions you will find just ordinary police reports of accidents? And sometime later, perhaps, the state might decide, or the county, I'd like to have some federal money to make some changes at that crossing, and maybe we can use some of the data to assemble it uh, to try to apply for federal money. Now, how how should we interpret that statute? Well, if I understand the hypothetical, um, Your Honor is postulating a situation where there is an accident report purely state in origin. Um, Just to help the Court, I don't know that such a thing exists uh, after the uh, crash data forms. Uh, It's to be understood that the Department of Transportation has been, since 1966, Mm -hmm. working with the states to develop a uniform crash data form. And I think it's becoming more and more successful that goes on. So I'm, I'm, I'm now. So hyper- your point is that the police officers are using uh, a kind of a unified federal traffic report when Essentially, there's an accident. Uh, the, the the forms are not all the same because each state has the right to, to, to choose how to put it together. But the elements of the forms are uh, dramatically federal in uh, their nature, and they're federal totally uh, directed toward the issue of highway design. That's why. Um, nationwide, there was a report uh, cited by um, the Washington State uh, Amici uh, and um, multi-state uh, amicus, Amici briefs uh, that pointed out that nationwide, before 1966, uh, there was no standard at all. Well, let me ask, ask you this: at, at page 20 of the respondents' brief, we have four different uh, interp- interpretations or possible interpretations of the access for. Do we have to choose among those in order to, uh, as, 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 as a, a predicate before reaching the constitutional issue? Uh, and I'll just, and this is in line with Justice O'Connor's question. If, if we took the most expansive view uh, of the alternatives that uh, she presents, uh, then the opinion that we would write, it seems to me, uh, would be, be different than if we took the more narrow the most narrow view. And that leads me to the question, do we have to have a statutory construction as as the beginning point of of our holding? Uh, I don't believe so, Your Honor. Uh, And and the county's position, uh, and we believe it's well-founded, is that the constitutional issue is not an an excuse for artificially, narrowly interpreting sections. Well, but I I, I think that our our court has always preferred 
along the lines suggested by Justice O'Connor and Justice Kennedy to construe a statute to avoid constitutional problems if we can. And uh, certainly the respondents here at least suggest there are several different constructions. Uh, are, are you not prepared to say which of those you favor? Well, I'm, uh, I'm happy, in, in fact, uh, I had intended to, if given an opportunity, to uh, provide the court uh, the way the county believes the statute should be well, interpreted. I'll give you that opportunity right now. Okay. Yeah, that's our, that's our question, and you might bear in mind, if, if you wish, that I think we generally construe evidentiary privileges narrowly. Yes. Uh, however, as the court pointed out uh, uh, on that issue of narrow construction, uh, that uh, uh, in the Shapiro case, I believe, which was also a raw data case in, in, whose purpose was to encourage participation, uh, that uh, even after quoting the, the standard, uh, the test of a narrow construction, the, the test was first, what did co Congress intend? And that the uh, issue of you know, that particular uh, rule of construction uh, is not to be used in a way to artificially narrowly interpret uh, what Congress meant. And if Congress meant something, then that's the test. Uh, at, to answer uh, just, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist's uh, question, how does the county uh, say the statute should be interpreted? Uh, pretty much we agree um, with the logic of the, the United States Solicitor General, but just would suggest that the, their logic be extended to what we believe is a logical conclusion. In other words, we disagree with plaintiffs that it only covers generated documents because uh, under um, 409, uh, it con that's interpretation conflicts with the, what this Court has said the plain meaning of compiled means, uh, as it, this Court has discussed in the John Doe case cited to the Court. Uh, also, this reads out of 409 the express protection also of data collected, uh, not just generated. It ignores the legislative history of why 409 was amended uh, and why it used the, the language compiled you're, you're to begin with. You're telling us what's wrong with the other reading. Which is your reading? Though? Our reading, Your Honor, is that there should be a, this Court should uh, establish a bright-line rule that documents collect, as the language says. For, we would ask the Court to enforce the language of the statute, which reads, uh, documents and data, quote, compiled or collected for the purpose, end quote, of specified highway safety programs. And here's the operative language, quote, shall not be subject to discovery or admitted into evidence in a federal or state proceeding or considered for any other purposes in any action for damages arising from any occurrence at a location mentioned or addressed in those documents or data. In other what, words, what about it doesn't say documents. I mean, you, you quoted it. You, you began the quote after, yes, I was, after the noun. Yes, I, I was something. Yes, the sir. noun you inserted was documents. Yes, there are specific references, specific it says type. data, doesn't it? It says data and also lists reports, uh, lists, and that sort of thing, and I was trying to condense it down. To be yes. plain, do you mean that everything that goes to the Public Works Department, everything that eventually gets to the Public Works Department and is relevant to the safety of highway crossings is exempt from discovery? Yes, Ron. That is what we're saying. Every fact. So that if the Department of Environmental Protection has, has prepared a report saying the accidents are, are wrecking the grass and the flowers at an intersection, and that report is then given to whatever the data collection agency here is for this purpose, that all of that data, including the data in the Department of Environmental Protection, is, is then covered by the privilege. Is that your position? Uh, to the extent that um, that um, characterization goes to the data that's in the reports, it's not to say that all we're that's, saying — That's my question. Yes. That the same data is in the environmental report, that data is then given uh, to, the, to the collection agency. Does the data, even in the hands of the Environmental Department, become subject to the privilege at that point on your reading? We believe that, again, if it meets the test of, of dealing with um, an occurrence at a — again, following the language of the statute — an occurrence at the location mentioned or addressed in such reports in the damage action, then that report that is collected and compiled by — I'm not talking about the report. I'm talking about the fact which is reported, the yes, data sir. in the report. Well, does that — does that data that become yes subject no. to the privilege? Uh, yes, if, Your Honor, means when you say data, going to the report to get the data. To, to, if you were to — if that person who wanted to raise that issue were to go to the, the person who, who — or the entity that created that information — and were to depose that, those people, they could get the information that way. All we are talking then about — then, then the answer to my question, I guess, is no. The data does not become, as such, 
subject to the privilege. It's only the data as held by the collection agency. You can still go to the environmental department, depose them, get your information. Yes, you can. Okay. Yes, and I'm sorry, I misunderstood. Well, can you what if you don't have to depose department them? under this uniform federal form you were telling us about? I'm sorry, I missed the you, question. You, you said at the outset that there's a uniform uh, document for collisions or crashes or something. Yes. And the police department fills out. Can you go to the police department and get that information? Uh, under our interpretation, you could uh, find the, the officer, you could depose the officer, but you cannot get the report if it's collected and filed for uh, ha hazard identification. Well, so then the Justice Souter hypothetical uh, is, is different from this. You, you said in the Justice Souter's hypothetical that you could go to that department and get the document. If you go to the police department, you can't get the document. No, and you didn't say he could get the document. No. You said you could depose him, and that yes. was what my question was going to be. Are you drawing a distinction between getting the document that was generated in the environmental agency and deposing the, perp the person who made the document? Yes, Your Honor, that's a distinction that the case... Why? It says, it says data. I don't care about the cases. I care about the text of the, of the statute. It I says data. It's data whether it's in a document or whether it's in, in, in some... A deponent's head. Data is data. I think that certainly is a, a fair interpretation of the statute. What we're trying to do is synthesize what, how the courts have, have looked at this, uh, and they have drawn the distinction, saying that really what the purpose of this was was to put plaintiffs back in the position they were before all this, this mechanism of creating accident data uh, existed. Beforehand, that's what they had to do. They, they didn't have this uh, silver platter uh, but they could get a police report of an accident. Isn't that standard routine in negligence cases? Your Honor, before the 1966 Highway Safety Act, they could not get an accident, a collection of accident reports, at least in Washington State, that's my understanding, nationwide, just by asking for them by location. But you could certainly get a police, or at least judging from my own practice in Arizona, you could certainly get a, an individual police report of an accident. Yes, if you knew that, and that's the point, you essentially have to know what plaintiffs are trying to find out uh, to get the document, because you couldn't ask for all the accidents at this intersection. You could ask for a date and people involved. Uh, but you couldn't ask for, give me all the accidents at a particular intersection. No, but you could ask for the police report of the particular accident that you were concerned with. Prior to 1966, yes, Your Honor. That's correct. I'm that still is. slightly mixed up. Okay. Imagine the Forest Service in the state collects, because they have tree lovers, a piece of paper that says, the elm trees at the intersection of such and such were diseased. All right, now that's done for purposes of tree health. And there's a piece of paper in the environmental tree section which has that written right on it. And one day the Transportation Department, for safety reasons, says send us a Xerox of that. Okay, the question I think Justice Souter was asking and Justice Scalia, and I would certainly ask, is in your view, when they send a subpoena or a discovery to the tree department to get that piece of paper, can they get it? No. 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 Very well. Suppose that the transportation department one day wrote a witness's name down and address which they got from the internal state government telephone book. In your opinion, could a plaintiff go and ask for a telephone book? The answer, I guess, is no. Let me think about that for a minute. Well, I don't see what the difference would be. They, they didn't collect the telephone book for purposes of, of uh, they didn't make the telephone book for the purposes of, of uh, accidents, but one day somebody went to the telephone book and copied some information out of it for the purpose of accidents. I think what they copied. And that's why you see exactly why I find your interpretation of the statute rather strained. So what, what is the, what is the uh, answer to what my hypotheticals suggest? Well, since my answer uh, uh, would be strained if I said the, the, photo, the, uh, the telephone book, what I'm referring to would be what was written down for the purposes and collected for the purposes. That but you said that they could not get the piece of paper yes. in the tree division. They, and they all I'm having trouble is distinguishing between the piece of paper written for tree health and the address in the telephone book written so people can know where people should be phoned. The piece of paper written for tree help, and I'm sorry I misunderstood the question. I thought the court was asking about the telephone book. The telephone book, no. The piece of paper that was written down from that, yes. But that's collected and compiled. And that's really what the, the Schatz uh, case uh, said, uh, that if there's a question about this, of whether this is really fairly included for the purposes of 152, um, then for that purpose, 
uh, you have an in-camera inspection. But what is there that suggests that Congress wanted to change the game to that extent? One can understand what you've suggested before, wanting to keep personal injury plaintiffs in the same place they were before this legislation. But your interpretation takes away from plaintiffs things that they would have had access to before. Your Honor, we res uh, respectfully, we disagree with that characterization of our position. Well, you just, in response to, to the Chief's question, said that at least the police report of this accident was routine. Yeah, the, the police report of this accident, when you go and ask for and the reason why is because, because of the Highway Safety Act, 1966 Highway Safety Act, the accident reports were indexed by location. You could go and get a specific re report if you knew the facts enough of the accident, but only that accident report, not all of them. And, and that is how but that's not because of a privilege, is it? Yes. It is because I of thought, a privilege. I thought the, the reason for that is oh, the I'm police said, look, we don't have to do your homework for you. Uh, if you know what you want, we'll give it to you. If you don't know what you want, we don't have to search for it. Isn't it's, that the reason? Yes, uh, the, because the police don't do that. The police don't care about highway design uh, factors other than okay, because so, the form so asked them to. In, in the past, then, uh, in, in, in accordance with Justice Ginsburg's question, you could have asked for the police report, and in Justice Breyer's example, I presume you could have gone to the tree division and said, let's have the slip of paper that says the elm trees are diseased. Now you can't do that. Well, Your Honor, I, I believe in, in that Justice Ginsburg's question is, I thought it was supposed to leave things, as it were, level, where they were, that a disadvantage was not being uh, created. It was simply, uh, the intent was simply to avoid creating a new advantage which would deter the state. Isn't that the way we should read the statute? I think that the purpose, yes, Your Honor, is to avoid discouraging states from participating and allowing them to get accident reports in the hands of third parties uh, does discourage states from participating. Would you like to reserve your time? Yes, I would, Your Honor. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The 1995 amendment to Section 409 is, contrary to the determination of the Washington State Supreme Court, constitutional. The provision protects data that is compiled and collected for purposes of applying for federal highway funds from being used in state and federal court litigation. The documents at issue are inherently federal in character, and so Congress has the power to prohibit the use of those documents in both federal and state court litigation. Well, what about documents created uh, not for the purpose of getting federal funds, not for Section 152, but for some other purpose, some of which are later incorporated in a, a federal funding application? I think those By different agency. I think those documents, Justice O'Connor, would be discoverable and admissible if the documents were sought from the party that collected them for a purpose different than the federal highway funding purposes. But what the statute, I think, does prohibit is somebody going to the, the state highway traffic department and essentially engaging in a one-stop shopping enterprise where they can get all sorts of documents but that have been collected. But you differ from petitioner in your reading of the statute. Your, yours is much narrower, I take it. Th that's exactly right, Justice O'Connor. And so as a result of our interpretation of the statute, the typical police accident report can be obtained from the police department. And I think with respect to Justice Breyer's hypothetical, the report about the tree can be obtained from the state tree department or the state environmental department. Let, let me ask a somewhat different question, although I'm not sure we've resolved <laughs> the point that we're, we've been inquiring about. Uh, would a state have the, um, the right to waive this privilege? I think that's a difficult question, Justice Kennedy. I think that, as, as you know, <coughs> as a general matter, evidentiary privileges are waivable, and so and that's the proposition this Court has established in cases like Menzonado and Hill. But there is a sense in which this privilege exists, in our view, primarily for the benefit of the federal government, so that we can obtain accurate, complete, and candid assessments of highway traffic safety requirements. And so there's a suggestion, for example, in the Hill decision at footnote 3, that when a third party's interests are at stake, that the Court may not find waiver under those circumstances as it readily as it would otherwise. So our view, I think, would be that although the Court need not definitively resolve it in this case, 
there's a strong argument that the privilege would not be waivable. Let me just uh, interrupt you, if I may. Are you saying that the lawyer defending the county, if the plaintiff called him up and said, I'd like to see these reports, and the lawyer said, well, they're privileged, but I think I'll give them to you because I think it's in everybody's interest to know the facts, that would violate the federal statute? I think the admissibility of those materials — I'm just asking about showing them to the plaintiff. I, I think there's a sense in which it would violate the federal statute, but I'm not suggesting that the Department of Transportation is going to be able to leap to the defense of the statute in that hypothetical and assert the interests of the statute. I think, however, if a state wanted to take a systematic policy of disregarding Section 409 — I think that would implicate the federal interests, and I'm not sure that a state would be able to do it. Well, supposing this simply comes up during a trial. Uh, a witness is, de- is, de- is put on the stand, asked about the preparation of a report, and the state doesn't object, and it would be objectionable under the statute. Now, is, is that something that could be uh, challenged uh, on, on appeal, say? I, I, I don't think so, Chief Justice. I think it is something that could be procedurally defaulted. But I do think if in a case like that the state went to the trial judge and said, look, there is this provision of federal law, Section 409, that says this material can't come in, but we're happy to just disregard that provision. I think the trial court might well be within its rights to say that, no, we're not going to disregard that provision of federal law. We're going to keep the material out. But I do right, think it is, be- is, is it a matter of discretion for the trial court? I mean, it would be one thing to say it's mandatory, it's a federal requirement, and now you're suggesting that well, the lawyer can overlook it, and the court could or must act on its own? Well, I, I'm suggesting that the language of the statute is mandatory. It says that it shall not be admitted. So I think if the language is brought to the attention of the trial court judge, he or she would be in a position where they ought to exclude the evidence. How would this be enforced by the federal government? I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the federal funding is not tied to the 409 privilege, but is tied to the 152 reporting obligations. So what federal enforcement would there be for a county that says, we think it's fair for the plaintiff to have accident reports, so we'll give them? What federal — how would that mandatory requirement that you just stated be enforced by federal authorities? I think under the circumstances that you're envisioning, Justice Ginsburg, the federal government would not provide funds under 152 or 130 or 144 to that particular locality. So you're saying that the 409 privilege is not simply a right of the state agency, but is that the funding depends on the states asserting that privilege? Uh, it certainly depends on the, on the states or the localities abiding by that privilege as a general matter. I don't think a state or a locality can take a cavalier position of saying we're just not going to be bound by the provisions of this federal statute, but yet we'd still like to take the money under those three statutes. I don't think that's permissible. And the reason is, is that Section 409, although it may benefit the state in a particular litigation, does serve an important federal interest, and that is the interest in getting complete and candid information to assess and to award federal highway funds. By analogy, I would suggest this this Court look to its decision in the Buckman Company against Plaintiff's Committee case, because in that case, this Court recognized that the FDA approval process and the process for applying for FDA approval is inherently federal in character. And so this Court preempted state tort law that might distort the effect of applying for FDA approval. In the same way, the process of applying for federal highway funds and the documents that are used for that purpose have an inherently federal character. And so the federal government has an interest in making sure that the information provided to the federal government is accurate and complete, and it has an ability, Congress has the power, to take those essentially federal documents and protect them both in state and federal court litigation. Now, I would suggest that the answer to the waiver question, unlike the answer to the statutory construction question, is not a necessary component of this Court's decision. We think the better view is that that it could not be waived, at least in gross. Of course, if it could be waived, I think that is, is, is an additional answer to any accountability questions that may arise. But again, we think the better view is that it can't, is, is that it can't Clement, be waived. One of the arguments made by Respondent Willen is that uh, is a Tenth Amendment argue, argument. Do you think he has standing to make that argument? 
I, I think the better view is that, that he doesn't have standing to raise that argument, and I also suggest that if they wanted to make a Tenth Amendment argument and wanted this Court to decide the difficult question of whether or not an individual has standing to raise a Tenth Amendment argument, that they probably should have raised the Tenth Amendment argument before the conclusion section of their brief. And I think this Court would be well advised not to definitively decide whether or not an individual has standing to raise a Tenth Amendment issue. I th why, why, what's special about the, this is just an assertion that the federal government has no authority to do what it has done. And, and you say an individual who has been harmed by the federal government's exceeding its authority does not have standing to challenge? It seems to me we do it all the time. Well, Justice Scalia, I, I don't think all Tenth Amendment challenges are created equal, and I think therein lies the difference. If all the Tenth Amendment challenge is, is a mirrored reflection of Congress not having the enumerated power to enact the statute. But that's, that's all, all that it is. How, how, that's how, all how about a Commerce Clause challenge? Yeah. Absolutely. In those kind of cases, the individual does have standing. But this Court on various occasions has suggested that there's an additional component to the Tenth Amendment that is not just a reflection of the enumerated powers of Congress, but rather there are certain special areas of state prerogatives that the federal government can't intrude through congressional well, we, acts. we allow those challenges all the time in separation of powers cases. I, I, I think that's right. But, but Justice Kennedy, I think there's, there's something that certainly seems different. If the gravamen of the complaint is that there's some element of state sovereignty that Congress cannot intrude upon, and the state doesn't object to that intrusion, it seems odd that the individual would have well, third-party standing I could, to raise the I could say the same thing for the executive and the, and the legislature in a case like um, Chadha. Again, I, th I think you could, and I think that's why, with respect to a more typical Tenth Amendment challenge that's based on an enumerated power or the lack of an enumerated power, there would be standing. I think what this I Court suggested — Whenever the government goes beyond its enumerated power, it is infringing upon the powers of the states, isn't it? Well, all, I, all, the, all, all the Tenth Amendment says is, you know, other than the enumerated powers, the other powers — continue where they used to be with the states. In other words, I don't see anything special about a Tenth Amendment claim. In Buckley against Vallejo, we held that the appointment clause, where, where the president had signed the, the legislation, could be raised by private individuals. You know, I understand that, and that was also true in Chadha. I think if there is a difference, and this Court suggested there might be a difference in the TVA case, um, if there is a difference, it's because there are certain Tenth Amendment challenges that have the nature of just an intrusion on state sovereignty that's particularized. The, the, the hypothetical that the cases have often talked about is moving a state capital. And if the state doesn't object to moving the state capital, it, it's hard to see why an individual ought to be able to raise that, that question. I think the more important point, though, for this case is that there was a suggestion to this effect in this Court's TVA decision. If this Court wants to revisit that decision, it, it probably doesn't want to do it in a case where the Tenth Amendment challenge is not properly raised and isn't even raised at all in the briefing before this Court into the conclusionary section of the brief. With respect to the enumerated powers questions, which I think are the gravamen of respondents' case and the Washington Supreme Court's decision, there's no question the individual has standing. That was true in this case, this Court's decision in United States against Lopez, and would be equally true here. And I think this Court can take comfort in knowing that this is, at bottom, an enumerated powers case, not a Tenth Amendment case in any specialized sense, because the Washington State Supreme Court found it unobjectionable that Section 409 would apply in its pre-1995 amendment version. And what that indicates is that there's nothing sacrosanct about state courts procedures or state evidentiary rules. Don't, don't you think that uh, our opinion in the Commerce Clause case, uh, in, in order to have persuasive force, should begin with an interpretation of the statute, recognize that a privilege can be waived or not waived? I, I find it very difficult to see how this opinion can be written when we, we're not sure of the reach of the statute. I agree with you entirely, Justice Kennedy, that the, this Court should define the scope of the statute before deciding whether or not it's constitutional, and we would urge the United States' construction of the statute. I would say that the waiver question is somewhat different. I don't think the constitutionality of the statute turns on the waiver question. If the Court disagrees, we would urge the Court first to find that this is privilege is not waivable, at least in gross, and second, that even if it is waivable, the statute remains constitutional.
Do we have a final state decision here, Mr. Clement? I think you do have a final state decision, and I think that's most clear with respect to the PDA action. That's the, the State Public Disclosure Act that was brought. Because in that case, the Washington Supreme Court held that the four documents were disclosable and said that attorney's fees would be appropriate. And this — There was a fifth document, though, and, uh, and, and they didn't, there, were, there was no appeal on that one, right? Well, but there was no cross-appeal on, on that document either, Justice Scalia. So I think that document is no longer part of the case. When the Washington Court of Appeals held that four of the five documents needed to be disclosed, Pierce County took an appeal to the Washington State Supreme Court, but I don't think that the Guillens filed a cross-appeal suggesting that the fifth document ought to be uh, disclosed. And so I really think the fifth document is no longer in the case. And since the Washington Supreme Court found that attorney's fees were appropriate, that means that there was a final judgment. That's true but both — Mr. Clement, there was — you said that the, that the PDA suit, the four documents were required to be turned over under that. But I thought the Washington Supreme Court said that accident reports from non-officers, from witnesses, would not be disclosable under the PDA, though they would be subject to discovery under Rule 26B. So the notion that the PDA suit was the one that determined that these four documents were uh, required to be turned over I don't understand that because I thought there was a one part, at least, the reports from non-officers, that the um, county prevailed on before the Washington Supreme Court, but that it was a Pyrrhic victory because they lost on that point under 26B. That's not how I read the decision, uh, Justice Ginsburg. I thought — I read the decision as the four documents were clearly going to be disclosed as part of the PDA action. Did you read the decision to say the, these documents are not disclosable under our Freedom of Information Act? Nevertheless, they can be discovered in, in a civil litigation. That's not with respect how I read the opinion. I read the opinion that those four documents are disclosable under the PDA. The only objection to disclosure under the PDA that was raised by the county was, was Section 409. And with that issue resolved against the county, I took the import of the decision that those documents would be disclosed. At that point, I think it's clearly a final decision because this Court has held in the Becton-Dickinson case in the context of Section 1291 that the fact that attorneys' fees need to be resolved on remand doesn't deprive a decision of finality. And in that decision, this Court relied on 1257 decisions, and so I would think that the same rule would apply in both contexts. So I think that the PDA action clearly is final. I think the tort action is a more difficult question as to whether that's final. I think this Court might have to change its — to modify its precedence a bit, but I think it might be um, a wise course in light of what Congress has done here. I think this case is quite analogous to a case that this Court found final called National Mercantile Bank against Langdeau. And in that case, there was a state uh, venue provision that a federal statute trumped, and the state Supreme Court found that the uh, that the that the this court found that the state's decision saying that state law trumped the federal statute was final, and I think the, the cases are quite parallel. They both involved congressional efforts to modify state procedure in order to serve a federal interest, and in both cases, when the state court disregarded the federal interest and either through constitutional means or statutory means found the federal statute inapplicable, this court found that there was a final judgment in the Langdo case. And I think by, by extension of that decision, they could find a final judgment here. I think the main difference between this case and Langdo is that in Langdo, this Court took the position that upon remand, there would be no further litigation available in the State Court where the, where the lawsuit was filed. Here there might be some litigation that would go on in the tort action, for example. But I think the important thing is that the Federal interest has been extinguished. And I think if there's any play in the joints in this Court's finality, finality decisions, I think that it, this would be a particularly important case to find a final decision because an act of Congress has been held unconstitutional. Do, do we need to find finality in, uh, with respect to both? I don't think so, Your Honor. I think that these actions are severable. They were consolidated mm -hmm. for purposes of appeal before the Washington Supreme Court. And I think — So if I don't want to wrestle with the complexities of the tort action, what would we do? 
just uh, dismiss uh, dismiss that case as, as improvidently granted and decide the other one? I think that would be fair, or this Court could just sort of ignore the tort case and say that, that, that it's going to take jurisdiction over the PDA action and decide this federal statutory issue in the context of the state PDA action. And well, then it we can't ignore it. I mean, we've, we've, we've taken the case. We've granted certiorari. We've got to do something with it. Well, I, I, just, just hide it under, huh? There's only one case. I mean, I, I think that this Court could say that to the extent that the tort action is before it, that that action is not uh, final and that — or they're not going to — the Court's not going to definitively resolve that and that the PDA action is final. I would say to this Court, in, the, in, in a different context, actually managed to bifurcate a single case and say that one part of the case was final and the accounting action that was subject to remand was not final. That's we the wouldn't want to do that too often, I think. No, no, but I think if, if you can do that in a single case — I think you can certainly do it in a case like this, where these started as separate actions, were consolidated only for purposes of appeal, and really have separate life. If, for example, this Court hadn't exercised jurisdiction, what would have happened is that the two cases would have gone back down. The PDA action would have been essentially over, because as the county suggested, there's nothing left in the PDA action on remand. The tort action would go on. And once the PDA action was, was, went back to the, the trial court, then it would have been appropriate to appeal that on a separate track uh, from the tort action. And there would have been really no point to making the county go through that exercise. And so I think the PDA action is final. If there are no further questions, I think the important submission from the government is that the 1995 amendments can be given force in a way that renders them still quite well within the Congress's power uh, under the Commerce Spending and Necessary and Proper Clauses. Thank you, Mr. Clement. Mr. Mangia, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the statute does have to be construed, but regardless of how the statute's construed, it clearly does not meet this Court's requirements under South Dakota versus Dole, because 409 is not conditional. You read the plain language of 409, and it's not conditional in nature. It's a mandate. And if somehow it could be construed as being conditional, it's certainly ambiguous, as we've seen many interpretations and many questions as to the operation of 409. 409 cannot be justified under the Commerce Clause. It does not regulate commercial or economic activity. Instead, it regulates state courts. And that is the peculiar nature of this dispute. Because what is at issue is, is what does a state this is completely an intrastate concern. Well, why is it intrastate if you simply have a — if you interpret the statute to say a document that is prepared primarily for this — for getting money, primarily for getting money out of the federal government, can't be discoverable in a tort action? I mean, what, what part of the Constitution would that violate, if that's how you interpret it? You'd get all your documents, I guess, and so would anyone like you. But uh, that seems to be basically what the government's arguing. Justice, uh, yeah. Justice Breyer, I agree with the Solicitor General's uh, interpretation of the statute. We still get our documents. And I do want to make it clear for the record, and I think it's clear in the briefs, Pierce County took a different tack on this and had a very wide scope of interpretation. However, despite that fact, there are still — has to be authority under the Commerce or Spending Clause. Now, I may not get it in this issue if we get our documents. That's correct. But I'm saying that no matter what, the, the Act has to have authority under some Article I, Section 8 basis. Well, certainly right. And so Congress says we have a federal interest in trying to minimize accidents. And in order to do that, we want to get information from the states when they want our money. And to be sure the information is accurate, we want to be sure that at least the information they give us, they're collecting uh, with an eye towards being accurate rather than with an eye towards protecting themselves from uh, tort litigation. Sounds reasonable to me. What's unreasonable about that? Justice Breyer, because the analysis starts, is this commercial or interstate activity that, in fact, the federal government is regulating? And they are not. They're regulating state courts. And again, but, they're, but they're regulating it in, in the interest of, of a commerce-type thing that is preventing automobile accidents. That is the disputable part as to whether or not there's any evidence in, and within, not only in the record or anywhere that can be found, whether this action indeed would prevent any further accidents. 
All this statute does — But when Congress makes that judgment, don't we owe it substantial deference? That is, we're not going to sit as a committee of Congress to determine whether there's a link between this, the condition of these intersections and vehicles going in and out of states. If Congress made that judgment, it's not for us to question it, is it? Justice Ginsburg, that is, that is the historic and that is the correct analysis. This Court has been very deferential to Congress. Even if there's something within the information source that could support that reasoning, and again, I'll, I'll go to U.S. versus Lopez and U.S. versus Morrison for that proposition, where in U.S. versus Lopez, there were no congressional findings, at least this Court alluded to. They don't have to make congressional findings as long as there's something out there, some information. And the same thing with U.S. versus Morrison. Even when Congress did make a congressional finding, this Court said we're not going to necessarily find that, in fact, it had a substantial effect on interstate commerce. May I ask you just to, to back up for a moment to address the question that Mr. Clement did um, about the separateness of these two? Is, is there anything in the tort action that you are seeking that's different from the PDA action, or are these essentially two actions seeking the same material? Justice Ginsburg, no, they are seeking different materials. And the materials we sought in the tort action were much broader than what we sought in the Public Disclosure Act. And the materials, I do want to say this as far as that, there is no judgment in the tort action. I mean, that should be clear. There is no final judgment. This is a discovery order that was taken up on interlocutory appeal. Now, whether or not there is a final judgment in the PDA action is a closer question, but I would point out to the Court, page 114 of the Washington State Supreme Court's opinion, that you'll find at uh, Appendix A114, directs the lower courts to make their rulings in accord with the Court's opinion and did not simply say these documents either are or are not discoverable, and thus it is debatable whether or not there is a final judgment even in the Public Disclosure Act case. But the way you interpret it, although you say it's debatable, is that everything that falls under the PDA, everything that those four documents, those are not available to you. That's what Mr. Clement said, I think. That that's what rendered the PDA action final. Correct. And I read the opinion differently, where, in fact, we do get those documents. And I, we may have a fight back at the trial court as to the language of the Washington State Supreme Court, because I realize in its opinion it said that those would normally not be discoverable under the PDA, but then you have to look at the purpose of the documents. You, you set forth four alternative interpretations at page 20 of your brief. Do any of the documents involved in either of the tort action or the PDA action uh, comprise just those set forth in, in your category one, which is reports and data that, have, that the state agency actually prepares itself? Justice Kennedy, the documents that we sought in the PDA, even under the narrowest construction, um, under the narrowest construction, we get the documents, just on a statutory construction, under the PDA request. So, but some of the documents you've requested fit naturally within your Category 1? Correct. All right. So at least in this case, this Court need not address the constitutional issues. If finding no final judgment in the tort action, and in fact, a narrow construction for the PDA action. I want to go. Sorry, I'm not sure I understood. You say the documents that you request fell within Category 1? Of our interpretation, which is a very narrow construction of the statute. That's correct, Justice Stevens. In other words, they were documents that were uh, actually prepared to get highway funds. No, I, I'm sorry. If I. That's what I understood oh, you to say. No, I'm that, sorry. I'm saying we would get those documents under our construction. In other words, they do not fall within the parameters of that narrow construction, because these are documents that, in fact, were prepared by another agency. So in your view, none of the documents that, you're, that are in dispute fall within Category 1? Correct. Under the PDA action. That is correct. Not the tort action, but the PDA action. Do they fall in Category 2? I mean, can you tell us? <laughs> uh, no. If, if they don't fall within Category 1, we, I'm sorry, Justice Kennedy, if they fall within Category 2, 
Yes, they would. Under the PDA action, those documents would fall within. Documents the agency has in its possession. Correct. They fall within Category 2. And I do want to point out to this Court that, in fact, Pierce County's position, and it's shown in the record, was that we could not even discover the names of witnesses or the names of the people involved in the accidents, and that's surely not part of the federal highway funding data, because why is the federal government concerned with the names of the people involved in the accidents? And <coughs> this is a concern about putting documents, if you will, in, in, in a black hole and allowing certain information, which our Supreme Court has held as essential to the proper determination of these claims based upon state and local law. They are essential to those determinations going in and now no longer being discoverable. I think that is a very basic concern with this statute and why at least one reason it should take a narrow construction or at the very widest the construction put forward by the Solicitor General. But the construction put forward by the Solicitor General, as I understand it, is you can get it from the agency, like a law enforcement agency, but not from the Public Works Department. It's the purpose is, is uh, to implement the, the federal program. That's yeah. the government's position. Yes, Justice Ginsburg. But under that position, I suppose, in the day when we have this great database and all reports are there initially, then under the government's approach, everything would be exempt from discovery. Do you, read, do you read their position to say that? Correct, Justice Ginsburg, I do. And that is the day, if it's not today, that this oh, I, I didn't read it that way. I, I thought what they were saying was consistent with if it and maybe it's in this case. I don't think it is. But, I mean, if you ever had the great single database, you'd look to see whether the document was primarily created for the one purpose or the other. Where it's primarily created for accident reports, you get it. Where it's primarily created to get money from the government, you don't. I mean, does that work as an interpretation? I'm not sure we have to reach it, but if we did. Justice Breyer, as far as interpreting the electronic portion, it, it probably is a reasonable interpretation. And you're right, I mean, it, it's, it's not part of this case, but it probably have to be faced sooner or later. Going back to the, the scope, again, because we are talking about the interpretation of this, Pierce County took the position that were, and this is in the companion Whitmer case, which was the one that was the companion case at the state level, where private, act, private highway surveys done by, I believe it was a McDonald's and a Chevron company, which the county then took within its possession. It was unwilling to disclose because under 409. So, again, I think the county's position was a very broad one that anything that goes in within their possession then becomes non-discoverable and you cannot use it, which I think is a completely or unreasonable interpretation. I do want to take a few minutes and talk about the spending clause because this is not a condition. If you read Section 409, <coughs> The plain language of 409, it's mandatory. And surely when Congress has intended to use its spending clause powers, I think especially in the federal highway setting, it's been very clear. I don't see how you can characterize Section 409 as a condition. It's an incentive provided to, uh, for the state to participate in this federal funding program. The federal government hopes to get uh, information from the state and thinks that they'll be more apt to get it by providing the protections of Section 409. I don't see it as a condition at all. Justice O'Connor, I agree. I don't think it's a condition either. Whether you want to term it as an incentive or something else, I term it as a mandate. I think regardless of how you term it, then it cannot be authorized under the spending clause. But well, the, why the, not? It's a necessary and proper means of uh, ensuring that the federal money is spent wisely and efficiently. Now, I don't see the big issue there, frankly. Under the spending clause analysis, this Court has, has long gone through, through Pennhurst, through uh, South Dakota versus Dolan, just recently in, in uh, Durham versus Gorham. 
clear that the conditions have to be spelled out. Now, this is clearly some sort of imposition, and if it's not spending clause, then they'd have to have it under the Commerce Clause authority, which goes into the other, another analysis. You no have state another has to, no, no state has to participate in this program if it doesn't want to. If a state wants to turn down federal money, money it can, can it not? It can turn down federal money, and that's the interesting, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, about 409. Again, just reading the plain language of 409, it is mandatory. And there's no provision, even if you cross-reference the 152, there's nothing which, which puts anybody on notice about how this, how a state can avoid the mandates of, of 409. Well, but you agree avoid- nonetheless that, that, it, that a state can refuse to participate? You, 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 you say you can't, by reading 409, tell that it isn't just a legislative command based on something other than the spending clause. But don't, you do agree, don't you, that if a state didn't take the federal money, it would not be bound by 409? Mr. Chief Justice, I think that's an open question. And I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think you have to read the, the plain language, and it seems like Congress is saying you will do this. You think it's just categorical? Correct. But how can that be? If the, how could any document be collected for the purpose of participating in the federal program, the state doesn't participate in the federal program. Because if you read Section 152, what it mandates states to do is come up with a list and a survey of hazardous sites. That's all it says. In 152A, that's the mandatory part. So Congress, if it has the authority, can tell the states, do this list. Now, the question that begs the question whether or not Congress has that authority. I think that's when you have to turn to the list to whether or not you have federal money. Is that what you're saying? This is that this is not tied to federal spending. That's what you seem to be saying. It's independent uh, federal obligation on the states whether or not they receive any federal money. Is that how you read Justice, 152? Justice Ginsburg, that's correct. I think if you read the plain language 152, unlike 23 U.S.C. 131. 141, 159, 161, where it's clear that Congress says you must control highway billboard signs or you lose 10 percent of your funding. You must control uh, size and and weights of of vehicles that go on uh, interstate highways or you lose 10 percent of your funding. Those are all clear. In fact, in the Dole case, under 23 U.S.C. 158, I think that the title of the act was withdrawal of federal funds. Aren't we losing sight of the fact, the rather plain fact, that the states and the counties wanted this? They weren't satisfied with the program originally because they feared these documents would be discoverable and make the county liable. Do you have another spending clause case where the states and the counties came to Congress and said, please give us a privilege, and then say, well, now it's mandatory and it it's some kind of a club rather than a carrot. Justice Ginsburg, I have, I have two responses. One, I think actually this court addressed that same sort of analysis in New York versus U.S., where the Solicitor General argued that because New York officials wanted the benefits of the low-level Hazardous Waste Act, therefore they could not lo- uh, later challenge certain provisions of that act, and this court rejected that argument. But and this pr- this very provision they wanted. Not the thing in general. And, and that goes then to my second part of my, my response is, and I think it's a fundamental part of, of the constitutional analysis. Because here, if the states wanted this protection, they had the means to do it themselves. And, and this court has explained, again, citing from US versus New York versus U.S., state sovereignty isn't for the benefit of the states, it's for the benefit of the citizens to derive the benefits of liberty from the derision of separate powers. So it really, just because state officials want it, it's clear that the people of the state of Washington did not want this because it infringed upon a state cause of action. In fact, so much so that the state Supreme Court was willing to hold it was unconstitutional. Well, that goes to the waiver point. I, I assume the state can, can waive it if its citizens instruct it to do so. Or, or maybe not. The government says no. I, uh, Justice Kennedy, you look at the language, and in fact, you look at the early responses by Pierce County, where Pierce County clearly said, we cannot, I mean, we must, we, we don't have the choice. 
We cannot give you that. The hypothetical is that the state could waive it if it wanted to. That's the Justice hypothetical question. Yes. And, and I, Justice Kennedy, my response is I don't see how the state could, because I think just for the very reasons, as is pointed out by the Solicitor General, where do you cross that line between, I guess, a single waiver and then becoming endemic? I think that's the whole problem here. Under the recent cases under the Commerce Clause, and again, I, I just want to spend a couple of minutes on the U.S. versus Lopez and Morrison cases. It seems clear that, again, this type of activity, what's being regulated, is in fact state courts. In fact, the admissibility, the discovery of evidence. And that is cer certainly intrastate, and, and there's no contention here that somehow justice or, or the discovery of documents is somehow commercial in nature, and you cannot make that argument. So I think there is no basis under either the spending or the Commerce Clause to support this legislation. Well, is it irrelevant in your argument that the, that the object of the federal legislation is safety in an artery of commerce? Is that beside the point? Justice Souter, the object, at least for the Federal Highway Act, is safety. I don't think the same thing can be said about 409, because then you're becoming, as this Court said in U.S. versus Lopez, you're, you're building inference upon inference because you have to go and say, if these documents are no longer, in fact, discoverable, would it result in safer interstate travel? And there's just too many intermediate steps. So that you think the federal interest in this case is comparable to the federal interest in Lopez, the ultimate interest? I think that the, Justice Souter, the federal interest in Section 409. No, I'm talking about the, the ultimate federal interest that gives rise to all of this regulation, which is the safety of an artery of commerce. Uh, are you either disputing that that is the object, or are you saying that that object is on par uh, for constitutional purposes with the significance of the government's object in Lopez? Justice Souter, I think it's, it's more to let him say that the federal government certainly has an interest in the safe passage of interstate. Thank you, Mr. Mangia. Uh, Mr. Hamilton, you have three minutes remaining. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, very quickly, uh, three minutes, quickly. Uh, I would like to correct, I think, what was a misstatement by Respondent's Counsel, uh, at least one of them, uh, dealing with what the Court should do if it adopts the United States position. Uh, plaintiffs say that if you adopt that position, then they get the documents. I'll point out that in page 24 of their own respondent's brief, uh, they say that their uh, uh, interpretation number two, which they say the U.S. Uh, reflects, they say on page 24, if the court construes the statute in this fashion, then a remand would be necessary to determine which specific dis discovery request would be precluded and which would be, still be allowed. They're not entitled, even under their own admission, under the U.S. position. And in fact, I would point out in, on page 20 of our reply yellow brief, where we point out that, in fact, if that were the case, even if the U.S. position were adopted, these particular documents would have to be protected. Furthermore, obviously there is some confusion uh, uh, as to where we differ with the United States, and it's a very narrow difference. Uh, we both agree that generated documents are protected. We both agree that collected and compiled documents in the hands of the public works are, are protected. And we both agree that in some situations they're protected in the hands of third parties. They, though, very narrowly define that in situations where uh, the third party gets it, uh, is a transferee agency, where uh, you can only get it by indexing, uh, or where it's part of a um, computer base. Uh, I would ask the Court uh, to consider its own St. Regis Paper Company case, where it addressed a statute that uh, only made a protection when it was in the hands of, of uh, third parties or officials. And it contrasted the language of that statute with other statutes, 45 U.S.C. Section 41 and 49 320, whose wording is almost identical to 409. Uh, if you would compare those, you would see uh, that, that the case distinguished those types of statutes from a statute only protecting in the hands of third parties. So whatever 409 does, it certainly protects more than just in the hands of third parties. Uh, and I would also like to point out the reason why we differ from the, the U.S., we believe their logic is correct uh, with uh, protecting in the transferee hands and in a computer database 
uh, and where it's indexed. But if you carry that logic through, we believe a bright line rule should be established by this court. Uh, because obviously the state courts have been very, uh, some state courts, a minority of state courts, have been very resistant. Other state courts have been uh, trying to do their best to comply with the language of the statute. Uh, but some state courts have found every opportunity uh, to try to in- misinterpret the statute and it required Congress at least twice to amend the statute to get back to uh, what they intended. When you look at uh, the situation of why they wanted uh, the, the Solicitor General believe that documents in the hands of the transferee agency are protected, they said that the reason for that uh, was that they would not exist but for the planning agency's collection of that information. Well, so two accident reports uh, would not exist in their totally different form. They would not be indexed uh, and therefore accessible, and they would not be in the county's possession but for the Highway Safety Act. Uh, so you extend that logic through, uh, uh, then it, you come to a bright line rule which we believe the court should adopt. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Hamilton. The case is submitted.